Austin. I'm on the team here at the church. Um, and so if you're with us for the first time and you've been podcasting us and you've been live streaming us and watching some fantastic sermons from a man with dark hair and a dark beard as opposed to blonde hair and a, a blonde beard, um, you're right. I'm not him. And so if you came to see him, come back next week. He'll be here next week. Uh, he's getting the Sunday off. And so have the honor just to fill in here for a couple of minutes. I promise I'm going to make it short for us. Uh, but if this is your first time here or you've been a long-standing member of this church, man, it's a good thing to be a part of a church that believes that the gospel deeply, deeply changes our lives. That because of our relationship with Christ, because of our justification, that we don't have to be who we were, but that Christ is renewing us day by day by day. And so we're committed at this church because the gospel is life-changing to keep our, our eyes focused and our hearts centered on the person of Jesus. We want to know him better. And as we seek to know him, we begin to grow in faith and become the kinds of people that go out equipped to serve this church, to serve our local partners, and even to send people all over the world. And so as a church, we've been um, walking through the gospels just a pit the, the past couple of months. This began back in December. We were celebrating the season of Advent in which we were eagerly anticipating the arrival of Christ in the gospel narratives. And so on Christmas Day, we got to celebrate the, the birth of Christ. And as we came out of that season of Advent, found ourselves in a bit of a season of Christmas tide or epiphany, which simply just means the revealing of Christ to the world, the ministry of Christ. Begins In the last several weeks, we've been in this season of Lent, which is the, the slow 40-day march to the cross. And so we find ourselves just a week away from Holy Week, in which we will enter into Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and remember the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. But in the meantime, one Sunday of Lent left. And so we've been walking slowly through the gospel of John. Um, and John makes it really clear as to why he writes his gospel. His gospel isn't simply a biography of the person of Jesus, although it is an accurate historical account of Jesus. Uh, John says this in his gospel. He says, man, I'm writing all of this down that you might actually not just know about Christ, but that you might believe in him. In Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that you might believe in him because you do, you might actually have life in his name. Every dark corner of our life gets filled with light. Every dead area of our heart gets filled with life. When we come to believe in Christ, we actually get life in his name. And so the past couple of weeks, we've been walking slowly through kind of the final words of Jesus with his disciples. He's in this meal with his disciples, the Last Supper. Um, and these are his final words before he'll go to the Garden of Gethsemane and surrender his life to the authorities. And so while they've been at this table, a lot has happened over the past couple of weeks. Jesus has washed his disciples' feet and given them the command to serve one another just as he has served them. He's promised them the Holy Spirit, a counselor, an advocate, somebody that will continue to lead them in truth. He talks about himself as the vine and the branches at one point and encourages the disciples to stay connected to him. In the last two weeks, we've been kind of talking about this prayer 
that Jesus has. Last week, we talked about Jesus praying for the disciples that were in that room sitting at that table. And this morning, we're talking about the second part of the prayer, which is Jesus praying for future disciples, folks that will come to faith down the road. And so if you're following along in a paper Bible or on a smart screen via iPad or smartphone, we'll be in John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. That's John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. Um, As we lean into this text and as you turn there, we're going to find that Jesus is inviting future disciples into three things. One, he's inviting them into his unity. He's inviting them into his glory, and he's inviting them into his knowledge. Unity, glory, and knowledge. But uh, I want to start with this because... um, Every spring, every summer, every fall, every winter, it doesn't matter what the season is, I'm deeply looking forward to Christmas. I got Christmas on my mind all of the time. And so uh, just this past week as I was kind of reflecting on this text and I'm thinking of examples, man, how does this fit? My mind always kind of wanders towards Christmas. And I was thinking about this gift my folks got me one year. I was, I was a little kid. Um, when you know that, man, the bigger the present, the better. And so I stroll you know, down the stairs, and we see a plethora of you know, presents under the tree, and you see some of the bigger ones, and you're thinking, man, I hope that one is for me. And I found the one that I thought was the biggest for me, and I set that aside as kind of the last present that I was going to open. It was going to be from my parents. And so I got to my last present. I got this big old box, and man, I just started peeling away that wrapping paper and underneath the wrapping paper there was this box my my mom loved to hide presents inside boxes that tried to throw you off you know what it was actually going to be so I opened that box and to my surprise there was another gift inside that was also wrapped I thought oh a gift within a gift I got to get to the bottom of this so I peel that box away I get to the next one I, I rip that wrapping paper apart I, I open the next box and then it's a it's a box within a box within a box. And about over the next 15 to 20 minutes, I am peeling through box after box after box until finally it's just a small box about this big. And when I opened, I think it was tickets to a concert I wanted to go to. So the the opening was worth it, but there was a sense that this Christmas gift was multi-layered and there were boxes within boxes within boxes and they were all the same box. It was all the same package, but they were all separate, but it was all kind of part of the one same gift. When we get to John chapter 17, verse 20 to 26, beginning to imagine what Jesus is talking about It's difficult. There isn't quite a one singular metaphor or illustration or application that that makes sense of this. But but I think that example is helpful because Jesus begins to pray for future disciples and their unity. That they would be together. Uh, The Greek text actually just kind of uses this word one over and over again. That they would be one. That they would be one. That they would be one. And so in John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus begins by saying, my prayer is not for them alone. Jesus is talking, the the them is the disciples sitting around the table. Jesus continues, I pray also for those who will believe in me, who are going to come to faith in the future through the people that are sitting at this table's message. You know, it's an amazing thing to step back and think that we are a part of about a 
several thousand year old game of faith telephone. If you remember the game of telephone, you sit in a circle, somebody starts the phrase and you repeat it all the way around and you hope that when you make it all the way around, it's the same phrase. When Jesus is talking about these disciples, he's talking about these 11 around the table. They're going to have a message of salvation. They're going to have a message about Jesus, the kind of message that will help people believe and have life in their name. And because of the faithfulness of these 11 folks, 2,000 years later, here we are today, in faith, believing, having life in his name. So he says, I pray also for those that will believe in me through their message, that even in the future, that all of them may be one. That they may be unified. Father, I want, this is interesting, watch this. Father, I want them to be one just as you and I are one. In other words, Jesus at this moment isn't talking about I want them to be one with me in the same way that I'm one with the Father. That will come. Jesus says, I want these disciples currently at this table and the disciples thousands of years later, I want them to be one, singular, together, unified in the same way, Father, that you and I are unified. In other words, Jesus isn't hinting that the disciples in the future ought to just get along. That future disciples just ought to tolerate one another. But Jesus uses this picture of him being in the Father as the picture of what it looks like for disciples to be in one another's life and be unified. So I pray that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and I are one, there's this oneness here. And then he does shift it a little bit. Not only should disciples be one with one another, but he says, may they also be in us. There's this note of us being invited into the life of the Trinity, into the life of the Father and the Son being one. And watch this. He, he says that when the disciples are one, when they're unified together, and when those unified disciples are one with us, in us, Father and Jesus together, when all this kind of becomes one, this is so that the world may believe that you sent me. In other words, there is no greater tool for evangelism. There is no greater tool for showing the world what Christ is like for the disciples of Christ to be one, to be unified. There's no sermon message. There's no worship set. There's no outreach or service that is more powerful than God's people being unified than God's people being one together and one with him. He says, because when they do this, the world will know that God has sent Christ into the world, I in them and you in me, so that we can be brought to complete oneness, complete unity. In other words, there is no unity outside of Christ. Uh, people, in the world outside of the church, they can try every method, every tactic they can to bring unity through social pressure, through politics, through motivation, through self-help, through large-scale counseling, and whatever the method may be, 
Jesus would say here that there will be no oneness among people unless it's rooted in Christ. Christ in us. Christ in the Father. All of us being brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and that you've loved them even as you have loved me. I was um, thinking on this idea of unity and oneness and this movie 300 came to my mind. It's a movie about Spartans and war and those kinds of things. So there's this moment in which the Spartans, and there's not a lot of them, there's about 300 of them, uh, they're going up against a really big army and some of their kind of frenemies come alongside them and say, hey, we'd like to help you out. And the lead guy from the Spartans kind of looks at him and says, you guys don't, you don't look like much. And they say, well, you don't look like a lot. There's a lot of us and there's not a lot of you 300 Spartans, and so this lead guy kind of reaches out to the, the, the folks across the way and says, hey, what's your occupation? Right? And one guy says, oh, I'm a potter. What's your occupation? Oh, I'm a craftsman. Oh, what's your occupation? I'm a farmer. I'm a blacksmith. He says, oh, that's interesting. And then he looks back at his small group of 300 Spartans. He says, Spartans, what's your occupation? They don't even respond with words. They just give you a ooh, ooh, ah. The leader says, it looks like I've brought more people than you have. In other words, when people are unified, when they are united, it doesn't matter how many of them are, are, there are. Eleven unified disciples can start a revolution throughout the entire world. And so there's this idea in these first few, few verses that this unity, this oneness that we have with one another, this oneness we have being in Christ and Christ being in the Father, this is a deeply mysterious thing. But we ought to reflect that this is actually for the sake of the world. You know, this is one of the reasons why uh, being a part of a local church is so important. It's one of the reasons why being a part of a community group is so important. One of the reasons why serving on a team, whether it's here at the church or with some of our partners or even being sent overseas. If we're going to be disciples, we ought to be close enough, rubbing shoulders with people often enough that we like them at first and they get on our nerves later. And that when they get on our nerves later, we have the choice, am I going to separate myself from this person? Am I going to isolate myself from this person? Am I just going to try and get along or tolerate them? Or am I going to ask myself, how can I be one with them? How can I be unified with them? In other words, being a part of a church, being in a community group, serving on a team, these are deeply spiritual disciplines that we embed into our life that we might practice the discipline of oneness. So just a, a quick question for you. Who is somebody in this church, somebody in your household that you're just kind of trying to get along with, that you're simply tolerating? Who is somebody in your community group that you wish, I like them, but wish they weren't here, the group would be better without them? <laughs> Who's someone on your team that you're thinking, I hope they sleep in today? <laughs> Who is that person? And ask yourself, what steps do I need to take to be unified with them, to be one with them? Because church, our church is strongest when it's unified together and in Christ. 
Our groups are best when they are unified and in Christ, and our serve teams are best when they are unified and in Christ. So this is point number one. Jesus invites us to share in his unity. Here's the second thing. Jesus invites us to share in his glory. This is verse 22. He says, I have given... Notice the authority Jesus carries in this moment. He doesn't ask the Father to give. He just simply says, I have given. I have given them, talking about the current disciples and future disciples, I have given them the glory that you gave me. Now, it's important to pause for a moment and ask the question, what does it mean to have glory? What does it mean to be able to give glory? What the heck is glory? And there's this idea that glory is really two things. One, it's a look, and two, it's a license. In other words, there are moments all throughout Scripture in which people simply see God or they see the transfiguration of Christ. This is Moses. This is the prophets. This is the disciples of Jesus. And just the look of Jesus, they have to look away because it's too bright. Oftentimes, when you look up a definition of glory, it's radiance. It's brilliance. It's this idea of something glowing, but glory has to be something much more than that or else we could all just stare at the sun and be like, wow, that is, that's bright. So glory certainly has a look to it, but for God, when people see his glory, there's also an authority that comes with it. There's a command that comes with it, that they have seen Christ, they've seen his radiance, they've seen his glow, they've seen God, their face gets transfigured, all kinds of wild stuff. And because of that, it moves people towards discipleship. It moves people towards obedience. It causes them to begin to lead people, to lead churches, to confront kings, to write letters, to confront the nation of Israel. There's this idea that glorious two things. One, it looks a certain kind of way, and two, it has a license to act in a certain kind of way. He continues, I have given them the glory that you gave me, the the same glory Christ has, which is really interesting, so that they may be one as we are one. There's this Shared glory in this shared unity. Verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. I want those you have given me to see my glory. Christ wants his future disciples to have this glory and to be where he is. Isn't it a good thing that Christ wants us to be where he is? Isn't it a good thing that Christ shares himself with us. He knows, I want them to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And again, I was trying to think of what is, what's a good example for, for glory? Someone that kind of has a certain look to them and they also have a license to them, a, a kind of way of operating in the world and I couldn't help but think of 007. <laughs> James Bond. He has a license. He has a double O license. He used to be an MI6 agent. Then he did a couple things, got his double O license, which means the dude can kind of do whatever he wants to. You've probably seen the movies. He has a certain license that he's kind of free from uh, getting in trouble with the British government. And at the same time, dude, James Bond has a look to him. He's got that, that tuxedo 
black suit, white shirt, black tie. You see him walk into a room. He's got a certain kind of swagger to him. You see him talk to people. He's always a little bit witty, a little bit funny. James Bond has not only a look, he has a, a license. It's one thing if you look a certain way, but you have no authority or command. The opposite's true. You could have somebody who tries to exhibit a bunch of authority and command, but people are like, yeah, I don't know. They don't quite have the look. When we talk about glory, we're talking about both. And the good news is, is, Christ shares his glory with us. He shares his look with us. He invites us to look like him in the world, to be salt, to be light, to make the world better, to speak to people with grace, to forgive folks, but to also speak to people with truth. Christ invites us to look the way he does but not just to be kind of good people roaming around salt and light. There is a sense in which Christ shares his license with us. God has a license to do whatever he wants. He has ultimate supreme authority and command, and he shares that with Christ, and Christ then says that he shares that with us. Here's just a few examples. This is Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus is speaking. He says, don't be afraid, little flock. For your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Matthew 28, verses 8 through 20. This is Jesus extending his license to his disciples. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority, every ounce of authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and now I'm giving it to you. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you even until the end of the age. In one of the other gospel accounts, when he's extending this license, he commands his disciples to go heal the sick, to go raise the dead. At another point in the gospels, he says, hey, the keys of the kingdom have been given to you. Whatever you bind is bound on heaven and earth, and whatever you loose is loosed on heaven and earth. In other words, Christ has shared his authority that he got from the Father with us. This is a really kind of remarkable passage. That Christ shares his glory with us. This is why scripture reading, this is why worship, meditation, evangelism are so important. It's our opportunity when we come before the scriptures to try and get a better and better glimpse, a better and better look at what Christ was like in the world. How he spoke to sinners. How he welcomed the poor and the marginalized. How he encouraged and also how he spoke truth when he needed to in a way that sometimes came across as harsh. We read the scriptures because we want to know what did Jesus look like in the world And we also read the scriptures to know what kind of a license has Christ given us to approach him boldly in prayer, to approach him with bold, consistent, persistent petitions that God would come and make everything right. This is a question. What if this is true? What if God is sharing his look with you that you don't have to settle for being grouchy and grumpy and kind of mean to everybody? 
Like you said, Christ, if you were salt and light and if, and if people were drawn to you because of who you were, Christ, would you help me to look like that? And what if it's true that Christ has shared his license with you? That he shared his authority with you? That you can pray boldly for the sick? You can pray boldly for the hurting? You could pray boldly that when there's injustice, God would come and bring justice. And that when you pray, there's a certain authority to your prayers. What if that is, what if that's true? How would we live differently? How would we read the scriptures differently? What lesser glory are we settling for? So that's the second point. Jesus invites us to share in his glory. This is the third and final point. He continues in verse 25. He prays, Righteous Father. That God is righteous. That he's just. That God, when he looks at the world and he sees anything out of place, he loves putting it back together. God loves making the world right again. And so Jesus refers to God as righteous, good, just Father. Though the world does not know you, Christ says, I know you. And they know, the future disciples that you've sent me. I've made you known to them. And watch this. I will continue to make you known to them. In other words, coming into a knowledge of Christ, coming into knowledge of the Father is not a one-time singular event. In church, we've never fully arrived. But Christ is always revealing more and more and more of himself to us. How high, how wide, how deep are the riches of Christ's love for us? How unsearchable are his ways? In other words, this, is a, this process of discipleship, it is a continuous process. Watch this. He says, I'll continue to make you known to them in order that the love you have for me may also be in them and that I myself may be in them. There's, again, there's this kind of father, son to the disciples and the disciples in Christ and Christ in the father. And they're all, it's these three concentric circles that are kind of coming together in the middle. It reminds me of uh, my dad and my grandpa. You know, growing up in Oklahoma, I got to spend some time with my grandpa. They were great about coming to baseball games and we'd go to their house for Thanksgiving. But they were about an hour and a half, two hours away, which in Oklahoma feels like about five hours away. And in Los Angeles, just another day going to the office. Um, but it was a big deal in Oklahoma. And so, you know, what I found myself doing because I knew my grandpa a little bit, but did not get tons and tons and tons of time with him, that I find myself sitting with my dad often when I go home asking, hey, tell me more about grandpa. What did he do? What was he like? How was he as a coach? What were his parents like? In other words, my dad's grandparents. And there's something about my dad passing along to me what my grandpa was like. That there's a bit of my grandpa's story that's now in me, the helm story. It's, it's now in me. A similar thing is going on here. The father has sent the son, and now the disciples believe that the father has sent the son because the son is making that known to the disciples. The son is passing along this information. In other words, this is the really good news about this. 
God can be known. Now, it's a lifelong process. It's Christ continuing to make himself known to us. But we're not seeking after a God that cannot be found. We're not looking for knowledge of a God that cannot be known. We aren't searching for a God that ultimately cannot be seen. In another space, Jesus says, seek and you will find. Ask and it will be given to you. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Church, it's good news that in a culture that kind of believes sometimes in a a higher power, a spiritual thing, the universe, whatever you call it, it's a good thing to know that the scriptures tell us that God can be known and that it's not a mystery forever and that when we seek God, we can find him. And when we look for Christ, we know where to look for him. And that when we see Christ, we are seeing the Father. And Christ is continuing to make the Father known to us. That the Holy Spirit continues to guide us. This is, um, this is important information. Not just that we believe right. But this actually is this is kind of life-changing for us. It changes the way that we attend church. changes the way that we pray. changes the way that we read our, our Bibles. I love this um, quote by Dallas Willard. He's talking about this idea of the Trinity, God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, kind of all being one, this mutual oneness. And he says, the advantage of believing in the Trinity is not that we get an A from God for knowing the right answer. The advantage of believing in the Trinity is that when we then believe in the Trinity is real, as if the cosmos around us is actually beyond all else, it becomes a community of unspeakably magnificent personal beings of boundless love, knowledge, and power. I'll read that one more time. When we believe in the Trinity, it opens us up to the cosmos as being a place that is filled with unspeakably magnificent personal beings, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, full of boundless love, knowledge, and power, and that we get to participate in that. That we are invited into that kind of life of boundless love, knowledge, and power. This is why study is so helpful for us. Learning about the life and the joy of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and their invitation to us to be a part of that. And so my question is, what are you doing in your life now to make Christ, to know Christ better? What is your prayer life looking like? What is your study life looking like that you might know him better, that you might be in him and him being in the Father, that you might be brought to complete unity and, be, and share in the knowledge of Christ? Those are our three. That Christ invites us to share in his unity, invites us to share in his glory, and invites us to share in his knowledge, which brings us to the table of communion. And if you were to ask me, I think there's, there's no place better that brings those three ideas together. In other words, when we, when we come to the table, when we come to the bread, when we come to the cup, we don't just take it alone. We take it next to brothers and sisters in the faith. 
And we are reminded that our brothers and sisters to our left and to our right, whether in our immediate family or outside our immediate family, that we are called to be one with them just as Christ and the Father are one. So when we come, we're, we're invited into unity with one another, but it's the bread and the cup that also invites us into unity with Christ, that we might share in this Trinitarian life of boundless love, joy, knowledge, and power. Secondly, this is the picture of the glory of Christ. This is the picture of what Christ looks like, the one who is perfect laying down his life for sinners. That if glory is a look and it's a license, it's what Christ looks like on the cross and his license to lay his own life down. Nobody takes it from him. And finally, the cross. It is the knowledge of God. It is the wisdom of God that confounds the wise but brings the simple to faith. When we come to the table, it invites us to be one with one another and invites us back into relationship with Christ. It invites us to share in his glory, to take up our own cross as Christ did and follow him. And finally, invites us to know Christ more deeply. I love the words of Paul. I want to know Christ and Christ crucified. So if you have the elements with you, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he poured it out and said, this is my blood poured out for you. For as long as you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup, and remember that when you do, you share in unity with me. You share in my glory and you share in the knowledge of Christ and God making all things right in the world.